0: Thank you for listening to NSL Double Talk. Never stop learning. At Never Stop Learning, we connect you with engaging experts who join you and your friends or colleagues in conversation at a location of your choosing. With
1: NSL Double Talk, we are bringing the Never Stop Learning model directly to you. Each podcast will feature two experts in conversation on topics that range from global affairs to wellness to arts to innovation. Sometimes the experts agree, sometimes they don't, but we will
0: never stop learning and never stop laughing.
2: Did I answer your question? It (laughs)
0: did. NSL Double Talk featuring Kate Betts and Melissa Biggs Bradley. Their topic today is Paris, then, and now. A graduate of Princeton, Kate is an award-winning magazine editor and author who has held top positions at Harper's Bazaar and Vogue, including editor-in-chief of Harper's Bazaar. In fact, she was the subject of the 2001 Lifetime documentary, Putting Baby to Bed, Wife, Mother, and Editor-in-Chief. In In 2003, she was named editor-at-large at Time magazine. She is the author of the recent New York Times bestseller, My Paris Dream.
2: Even my family, my husband and my kids,
0: they hear me speaking French on the phone and when my kids were little they'd be like, why are you speaking a different language? We can't understand you. Melissa is the founder of Indigari, an innovative digital travel company that combines curated content with high touch service. She has been recognized as a pioneering entrepreneur in the luxury travel space and Indigari has been named to Inc's fastest growing companies in the U.S. and to Crane's 50 fastest growing companies in New York. Melissa earned her master's degree in creative writing at Columbia University and her BA from Yale.
1: There is an art form that the French bring to everything from how they make a croissant to food and wine and music and art that everybody else aspires to.
0: We are so excited to welcome Kate Betts and Melissa Biggs Bradley to NSL Double Talk. Okay, well, why don't we start with at what point
1: in Paris that you stopped feeling like an outsider?
0: Well,
2: does one ever stop feeling like an outsider? I never felt entirely French um, because I was always reminded that I was American on many different levels. And I think I, it was the language that was the ultimate barrier. And I went to Paris knowing that I wanted to learn to speak French fluently. French slang, not just French that I learned in school that was grammatically correct. And I knew that if I could get um, fluency in French slang that I would be accepted by the French. And that took about a year. I was lucky because I lived with a family and they had little kids who spoke only in slang and they're the ones who taught me how to speak French like that. And my French friends later would say to me that I spoke French like a truck driver. (laughs) But it helped me enormously to um, ingratiate myself as a journalist with subjects or getting around, traveling around the country, meeting new people. And the French are very strict about language and and grammar. But when they see you breaking their rules, that's when they accept you. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you
1: talk about it a bit in the book, the idea of acceptance or belonging versus an outsider, and they're not necessarily the same thing.
2: No, they're not. I mean, you can be accepted and feel like you belong, but still be an outsider, yeah. especially in places like France where the culture is so strictly maintained by rules. I think other cultures are different. Well Yeah, I guess there's the idea of
1: being an outsider and the idea of being somebody who belongs, and they're not necessarily contradictory. You know, I mean, what you were saying is you never stopped being an outsider, but you also got to a point where you felt like you belonged.
2: Yeah, I did. But ultimately, it was the knowledge or the realization that I would always be an outsider that made me move back to New York. Yeah. Because I just knew that even if I stayed there for the rest of my life, married a Frenchman, had children, I would always be American in their eyes, that I would never really fit in 100%. And I think what is maybe to the point of the difference between traveling somewhere for a short amount of time and living in a foreign country is that you can kind of feel or a fantasy of belonging on a shorter trip somehow you can feel like you could belong to a place and if you're invested in belonging there it's it's a different story. Yeah.
1: It's funny because I spoke to an expat a while ago who was living in Marrakesh. There's something wonderful about being an expat. And in many ways, to me, what I love about traveling is that sense of not necessarily belonging here or there, but having a perspective on the world that allows you to see something differently. I think there are lots of ways that slipping into a culture gives you perspective on yourself as well as on the culture. And sometimes when you're fully familiar with a place, you stop seeing it mm-hmm. in some ways. So that to me, that sense of that outside perspective is often almost true. A lot of the times when I travel places, I like to meet not just people who grew up in a place but people who've been living there for a long time because very often they can explain to me with nuance the rituals and the meanings of things almost better than people who've grown up in it. So you know, there's an interesting correlation about you know, how much of an outsider do you actually want to remain being even mm-hmm. if you're immersed in a place.
2: Yeah, that's funny because my friend friends always joke that I know Paris physically better than any Parisian. And one of the reasons that is, is because when I first moved there, I had this idea that I really wanted to know everything about Paris. And I'd studied the history of the city and the architecture and the art. And um, so I walked around every single arrondissement and memorized everything about each neighborhood. And it's funny when you first go to a place, how that imprints on your mind. I guess I studied the maps and I walked around and I discovered things, you know, yeah. and, and you kind of never forget that well, visually. Yeah.
1: And you don't take it for granted. Cause I feel the same way. I mean, I lived in Paris for two years and I feel that I know Paris better than I know New York. And I certainly, when I go back, will know every cultural event that's going on, every new restaurant, make sure to try them, go and see everything that's changed. And I neglect neighborhoods of New York that are beautiful and lovely for years, because in some ways I grew up here and I take it for granted,
2: yeah, yeah. It's easy to do that in a place that you think you know because yeah. you've been here your whole life. Yeah, what took you to Paris initially?
1: To study, I was in. I went to uh, high school for a year in Rennes mm-hmm. uh, to learn French, and since nobody in Rennes spoke English, that was an easy way to do it. Live with a family, and then I went back because I fell so much in love with France. And I think, in some ways, as you said, I knew I was never going to be French. But because of the language and the culture and it being imprinted relatively young in my soul, I feel it's almost like another part of me who lives there and, you know, we'll always have that connection in a way that it's, it's not my original home, but in some ways it's still a deep part of who I am.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Because that age is also so formative. Those years are so formative. And the French traditions and cultural manners are so strong that it's hard not to be imprinting that on your psyche or your habits. And in some ways, I think
1: that experience of living abroad, particularly when you're a little bit younger, and imagining that maybe your life could be radically different than what it has been, opens you up to sort of possibilities about all things in your life in a way that if you don't, and that's one of the reasons I think living abroad or studying abroad or spending time abroad is so crucial to, particularly when people are young, to give you that sense of possibilities that just because we've always done it this way, you step into somebody else's life and you see how different your life could be and and life is in other places, It, it opens up a world of possibilities for everything else you want to do. And you start to say, well, you know, I, I could actually live here. Or I could live there. Or I could do this. I could be, you know, a writer. I could be a doctor. Mm-hmm. But it, it in a way, materially shows you how different your options
2: are. And, and it shows you how different people are. I remember one of the things about living in Paris in the very beginning is I would meet people who were both French and a few American people um, expats my age. And they weren't necessarily people I would be friends with here in my own country because there are so many things that kind of guide your friendships and your discovery of people in your own home. But because I was living there independently and I was lonely or I was looking for a job or I was trying to meet as many people as possible, you befriend people you wouldn't necessarily befriend. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's, again, one of the great things about travel is it forces you
1: to be much more open about everything and a more negative way of saying what you were saying before. Sometimes at home, we are inhibited by our own biases and we're not even aware of the sort of snap judgments or ways that we put walls up and and don't go down certain paths. And as soon as you're in a place that's a wide open slate, you kind of are much more open and you take chances on people and places and activities and foods and everything else that you wouldn't necessarily do in your own home.
2: Now, one question I'm dying to ask you, because I know that Paris has always been one of the most popular destinations, the perennial favorite. Is that still true as a travel expert Do you still see Paris as like the place that everybody always wants to go or go back to?
1: Yeah, it still is, obviously for me, but also for lots of other people. And I think in some ways, the reason that certain places are very popular and consistently popular is it's not just the place, but it is a way of life. There is an art form that the French bring to everything from how they make a croissant to you know, how they think of design or displaying objects in a store that has a beauty and an elegance and a sophistication, you know, in in food and wine and music and art that everybody else to some degree is, is inspired by, if not aspires to. So I think that's what, I mean, every culture, it's not just the Americans who are mad. France. It's the Japanese, the Chinese from everywhere. And I think it's because they have always brought extreme attention to how they live life and how we appreciate the beauty of life.
2: I also wanted to ask you about Paris today because of all of these upheavals that are happening in the city and around the country. You know, when there is a kind of um, current event like that, it scares travelers off or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I People always say, oh, would you go to Paris today with all these demonstrations on the Champs-Élysées and they're breaking into the windows of shops and it's violent. Is that a deterrent? Like terrorism might be a deterrent to travel?
1: I think travel is so personal that You know, it depends on everybody's comfort. Everybody has different levels of comfort. My feeling is that terrorism, unfortunately, is a fact of life all over the world, and we've seen it in the States as much as we've seen it in Europe in the last number of years. And to me, I remember going to France right after the Bataclan attacks and seeing these Beautiful graffiti posters about the Eiffel Tower and saying, you know, Paris, we will not be afraid. And and people refusing not to sit outside. And it was in November and they were sitting outside almost as a patriotic act at cafes and saying, you know, we are not going to be afraid. Certainly Americans used to be much more intimidated by world events than I think over the past 10 years they've become sort of ignored to it. My feeling is that as the world faces terrorism. It's important for us to not stay at home and be isolated, but actually more and more to go out and and recognize how much we should support each other and share in that sort of very French stance to me of, you know, we are not going to be afraid. We are going to continue to live our lives. And what you're trying to do is shut us down and that's not going to happen. But everybody has to choose for themselves. That's certainly my response, is to say, you know, no, I'm going to I'm gonna go and sit in that cafe with you, because you're right, we want to stand up against this idea of fear.
2: And it's interesting, because sometimes when you go to a place in a moment of crisis, you learn more about the culture than you would in everyday life, or, you know, peaceful times. I know that when I moved to Paris, there were terrorist attacks happening. It was the summer of 1986, and I remember being afraid, but seeing the French and their stiff upper lip or cold blood or whatever you want to call it. Now, Kate, do you feel that
1: it is impossible to live the Paris dream for an average person who wants to have that experience that you had, which is a much more immersive travel experience and staying in a place? How is that do you find that accessible for others?
2: In a way, I think that it is more accessible than ever simply because technology has allowed us to go places and, um, you know, you can rent an apartment much more easily in a foreign country or in a city like Paris. You can stay there for longer. It's always going to be a matter of how much you're willing to persevere the French, you know, roadblocks that yeah. they put up to um, foreigners. But I think if if you go somewhere and you're determined to kind of immerse yourself one hundred percent in the culture and meet as many people as possible, the first step, obviously, is learning the language. And you have to be open to that and open to making mistakes and looking foolish or whatever kind of inhibition you have about speaking a foreign language. And once you get beyond that, I think even the French who are kind of snobby about language, if they see you really making an effort, they will embrace you. There will be certain you know, moments of jokes and stuff. But I think that they... When they see Americans coming and trying to immerse themselves in their culture, they are genuinely flattered by it. I do know that working in a foreign country and studying are two very different things. Working is a much different experience because if you're working for a French company, for example, which I did, you're kind of totally immersed in all of their cultural and legal and political dialogue. And for example, I remember when I worked, the first year I worked there, they had these free lunch tickets and it took me forever to understand that they were actually, you know, there was free lunch. (laughs) So I would go to the same place every day and pay and I remember going finally befriending a coworker and she was like, what are you doing? I was paying for lunch and she goes, that's what those tickets are. But there are things like that that are just stumbling blocks that you learn, and and you really learn a lot about the the way that a socialist country works. But I would encourage anybody to go and try to work someplace outside of their comfort zone, Um, even if it's in America and it's in a different state, you know, or a different community. I do think that that's also part of what ultimately made me feel like I was never going to be 100% a you know, citizen of that country because their approach to work is so different from Americans. And I remember a lot of the strategy of the first company that I worked for was, you know, do as little work as possible and collect the free lunch tickets. And then I got to an American company, which was Fairchild Publications, and they were operating as if they were in a New York City newsroom And we were kind of barreling through doors of couture houses and insisting on, you know, access to things that the French were like, wait a minute, this is not our protocol. You know, we have to, like, refuse you four times before we say yes. And so that was also a real learning experience. But I think all of that is, you know, it's such an enriching, as you said, it will always be a part of who I am, having survived that working experience in Paris. And do you go back frequently Yeah, actually, one of the great things um, for me personally was that when I moved back from Paris after five years, I was still working in in the fashion industry, and part of my job was to cover the fashion industry in Paris and Milan and London. So I would travel back and forth a lot, like almost once a month. So I was able to maintain my friendships and see the people, not only professional people, but my personal friends, very, very regularly. And I was able to maintain my French that way, too. It formed me in such a way that that is a big part of who I am, but a lot of my friends here in New York don't understand that. And even my family, my husband and my kids, they hear me speaking French on the phone, and when my kids were little, they'd be like, why are you speaking a different language? We can't understand you. So it's interesting to see how that intertwines with my life in New York City. But I have gone back regularly at least four or five times a year ever since I moved back. So, And the city doesn't change. Yeah. People say, oh, well, now there's Starbucks and now there's this and now there's that. And it's true, you know, the, the, the Americanization or the globalization of Europe is pretty shocking on first glance. But there are so many things that are the same that the French will never change and I think that's what's amazing. You know, just even the demonstrations in the street. You know, people in New York or in America were reacting to the gilets jaunes. You know, I can't believe they're doing this. What are they doing? And I'm like, this is the French way of handling political crisis. They get, you know, they run into the street and they demonstrate. And, and you know, there is, unfortunately, the group of people, the casseurs, the people who come and break yeah. and loot and whatever. But But this is a very ancient tradition for the french. Yeah. No, you're
1: right because I do worry when I go sometimes about that globalization, but then when you dig deep into the neighborhoods, they're exactly the same and that and the sort of reverence for ritual and continuity is there.
2: Yeah, it definitely is. And you know, there are things that I think w- change in the center of Paris certainly. I think this is true of other places like Rome and Venice, certainly. They are becoming more like a museum in the center. But there are also families who've lived in some of those buildings for six generations and they continue to live there.
1: I think, in some ways, one of the biggest trends in travel that we've seen is, as you mentioned, about Venice kind of turning into a museum, this sense of over-tourism. And part of it has to do with just the proliferation of air travel and the growing middle class around the world and the ability for more and more people to get on airplanes and go to places. Paris is still the number one tourist destination in the entire world for people. Uh, But Venice and Barcelona and Amsterdam are cities that have had big issues with over-tourism. And actually, even in Barcelona, they were demonstrating this summer against tourists because Local people felt that they were losing their city to people moving in and, and having travel experiences at the expense of them having a a, life, a normal life. And I think one of the things that we will start to see are people reacting because it's not just the residents of Venice who are leaving the city and are unable to live there in the way they want to, but a lot of tourists don't want to even go back because they Don't like the idea of seeing a city that is just mobbed with cruise ships and crowds of people. And so I think that sort of how do you counterbalance that? How do you have an experience in a place? And and I think you can still have it in cities going off season or going into different neighborhoods. Just in the last couple of years, people have started to recognize and say, okay, this is a big issue. And the counterpoint to that, I think, is going to be a slower, more immersive. travel experience where you do try to live, even if it's for a week, like a local. Wonderful travel writer Pico Iyer says, we don't travel to move, but to be moved. And you can't be moved if you're in a horde of crowds, right? So you can't have those out of the comfort zone epiphanies that you, you know, if you're in a horde of people. So I think the travel experience will change not just where we go, but how we do it, when we do it, and and what our approach is, and and that's the big trend that we're starting to see people be much more conscious about what is it that I want to see for myself, or that you know I want my children to experience. I don't want them just to go and see St. Mark's Square. I want them to fall in love with what Italy is and what it means, and that doesn't have to be in the center of Venice. It it can be you know taking a boat. To a little lagoon outside of Venice and seeing these smaller villages and fishing towns. And, and I think it's kind of trying to find that that is, is a big trend.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that. It's interesting because um, we were talking about this before, the idea of traveler versus resident and also this idea of um, how technology has changed travel habits. And I noticed when I was in Venice last summer that you know, there are all these people who are searching for the moment, the Instagrammable moment, and they are in the centers of these cities taking the picture, you know, in St. Mark's Square or um, on the Vaporetto or whatever. And and then you go outside that kind of boundary and you see the people who live there and you see the people who are also taking advantage of another side of technology, which is Airbnb and they're renting an apartment in a neighborhood that's farther afield, even though Venice is very small, um, and they are experiencing kind of the daily life of the place. And I think those two extremes are kind of what technology has brought to travel. And interestingly, the younger generation, for many reasons, veers more toward the Instagramable moment. But I think that the possibility of living in a place um, for a, Longer time, but not too long. You know, that you can stay in Venice in an apartment for a week or two or a month is an amazing thing. And technology has changed travel so much on so many levels. But that is one thing I think is amazing and great that you could go anywhere and live there.
1: Well, and similarly, you know, Venice is a great example. You go one or two blocks off the beaten path, and there literally is the sign in St. Mark's Square with an arrow that points you to the Rialto. And it's one road and everybody follows that one road. And you go one block in either side and you can be in a little square that's completely empty, that's quiet, that feels you know, really like the daily life. And technology can introduce you to those places. So they can show you, these are the restaurants in Venice that are not fast food, that are still run by Venetians of three generations. And don't buy the sort of glass that's been brought in from China. But here are five artisans that are trying to still create their craft and live in Venice, whether it's lace making or glass blowing or whatever. And you can find those places through using technology. Mm-hmm. And that is going to keep, you know, the traditional Venice alive. It's it's a choice. And I think in the same way, a lot of younger people are the ones that are going to take the Instagramable moment. They also are the ones in some ways who are very appreciative. They understand that they want to find something that uh, is authentic, that they don't want it to disappear, and that they can support it in the way that they travel.
2: Mm -hmm. That's true. I mean, and and, uh, we were talking earlier about the whole culture of food appreciation in the younger generation and how much more interested in food and food from different cultures this millennial generation is. And I think that's another aspect of travel that really opens up kind of vistas into other cultures. And they do appreciate that.
1: Well, And that whole farm to table and slow food movement is is another way to get people to under the skin of a destination because, you know, whether you're going to South Africa or Italy and you understand that you're going to a place where everything's grown within five miles and, you know, you're actually seeing the farms and and meeting the cheesemaker and those kinds of things are, again, a great way to really understand the place and not have it be this sort of fast food way of traveling.
2: Yeah. It's funny because whenever I have friends who are going to Paris and ask me for my recommendations, you know, shopping tips or restaurants, or I always type out these lists. And I recently went back and looked at several of my lists, and they're always about food. (laughs) And I'm always saying, oh, you have to go to this market or the Marché aux Enfants Rouges, you know, it's so amazing. But I think that is a really easy way to discover a city or a town or a culture yeah. in kind of an instant, you know, to walk through a market. Totally agree with you. Um,
1: you know, you see the personalities. And it's, it really is real and raw and fresh, literally and figuratively.
2: Yeah, um, and it's part of their daily life. Yeah. Thank you, Melissa. It's been great. Very
0: enlightening as a fellow Francophile.
1: <laughs> okay, no, this has <laughs> been so much fun. Thank you so
0: much. For conversations you can't ignore. Come back every Monday and Thursday for new episodes. Subscribe now and never stop learning.